The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Ruxton Ventures, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... As you're thinking about generative AI, it's no longer just stringing together sentences that were there, but rather it understands the context. It can determine what words are appropriately used with other words, and when they're used together, how that meaning may change. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh, along here with producer Tracy Madigan. And today we're joined by somebody who really knows what they're talking about. It's Mary Schwartz. She's the managing partner of ICF Next. It's a digital agency part of ICF. And Mary and I talk about healthcare and AI. Have you heard of them? Of course you have. Healthcare is about 25% of our GDP. She spent her time mostly in, in social marketing, which is an interesting subset of healthcare marketing for things like smoking cessation and healthy, healthy lifestyles, which you gotta love because that's what we all need to be more conscious of. And then we talked a lot about AI, artificial intelligence and machine learning, the various flavors of it, and how it's both a little bit of a danger to some of our jobs, but an incredible enhancement to so many elements of many of our jobs. So the recommendation from Mary, guess what? Learn it, okay? Take the time to sample it, find some vendors of AI technology that you can use that are approachable to you, find out how it works in your day-to-day life and how you can apply it to your job, because if you don't, you may regret it later. Here's our conversation. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you, I'm so excited to be here. So the old uh, opening gambit uh, that folks like me always ask folks like you is, gee, what were you doing before this? But walk walk our listeners through the career arc and how you got to ICF and specifically some of the areas you're focusing on now with AI and uh, healthcare marketing. I actually started in a, a very unexpected way. I began my career as a VISTA, so Volunteer in Service to America, now AmeriCorps, out in Arapahoe County, Colorado, because I had wanted to... I was very compelled to work in public service. And after doing that for about 15 months, I realized that I believed in the mission, but I didn't necessarily have it in me to do the direct work, to become a social worker or a clinical psychologist. So I went into nonprofit administration. From there, I actually started working in the digital space and moved through a couple of different nonprofits, landing eventually at MMG, which was a health communications firm. And there I took on a role as a uh, what we call a marketing technologist. So I'm one of those people who has always been in the digital space, but from a communications and marketing point of view. I was at MMG for about 11 years, went through a number of different roles, uh, eventually landing as their chief operating officer, at which point I decided I was ready for a, a new opportunity and moved over to the Lupus Foundation of America, was there for a couple of years and then realized that I did miss the consulting space. So I came to ICF. I had a former boss who was here who recruited me over and I've been here actually for about 10 years and it's just been a great experience. It's a wonderful company that gets to do really impactful work. Thanks for that. I I, I know the initials ICF, but I think I don't think I'm alone in sort of not knowing the genesis and history of the company. How do I know ICF or how is it interacted with a traditional citizen's life? 
Sure. So ICF actually stands for Inner City Fund. We are a company that's about 50 years old and we're founded by a group of people who were interested in reinvesting in D.C. following the riots because there were um, there was a need for urban redevelopment and renewal. So that notion of an inner city fund to to rebuild the area. From there, it grew into a consultancy and has worked on a number of different areas. Um, we have specializations in uh, disaster management. So if Superstorm Sandy, we support a lot of the recovery work from that, as well as Katrina. We do a, a lot of work in the energy efficiency space. So uh, one of my favorites is we get to work with different energy companies that are promoting you when you get those uh, flyers and promotions to switch out your light bulbs or your refrigerator. You might have seen an ugly refrigerator contest. That was one that we got to create. And then I personally get to work on a number of health campaigns uh, smokefree.gov is one of my longstanding projects, and we touch HIV.gov, um, a lot of work related to opioid prevention and uh, prescription drug uh, misuse prevention. So those are very, very busy and active arenas, but it sounds like you're really, I, I'll be blunt, really pushing uh, the, the, the good rock up the hill, as yeah. they say, to try and alter behavior. You know, many people use the uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, Smoking Cessation, and some of these larger marketing campaigns as being incredible examples of taking the long view. So when you signed up to do stuff like this, like how how do you get your head around the fact that it may be 5, 10, 15, 20 years before you see sort of the end zone in this kind of effort? You know, it's a really great point because to see the change at a society, societal level is years and years in the making. But there are moments throughout where we get to interact with the um, smokefree.gov is a good example. We have a number of people who use a chat program. So on your or text program on your phone, and we will actually, which is, is a, it's an algorithm. It's a system that's fully programmed, but we have an inbox where people can send questions and comments. And it's amazing the stories that we hear of the impact that it's had on individual people's lives. So while in the aggregate, the numbers do take years in order to see that impact and that difference, we get, we're get we fed by those moments and those individuals who, who get the support, who see the change and whose lives are affected. And those really keep you going. So the opioid epidemic, you mentioned that's one of, one of your portfolios. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to think of another more damaging chapter in American society, both economically and, 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 and socially. How is your engagement in that deepened? And what are some outcomes in, the, in those efforts that, uh, that should give us some hope? So we've been focusing a lot lately on, on provider education. So training those people who are then able to have the direct impact on the consumer. This is a, a massive issue and there are so many tentacles to it. And just the ways in order to to support the communities that need the help, but also to create that awareness and that community for for their caregivers around them, so that the support is recognized, the need is recognized, and then hopefully that the services are there to help individuals as they're actually able to recognize their addictions and receive treatment and support. I think that's a, a key area that continues to need investment. One of the other programs that we've just started supporting is the 988 program related to suicide prevention, a helpline. And that's been the incredible effort that is happening there. It's it's amazing to see and just to be able to be near it is is amazing. The the commitment and the dedication of the government teams that support that, it's it's awe-inspiring. Tell tell me the name again. What what is it? The 988 uh, helpline, which is to help individuals who are considering suicide. So it's it's specifically to help with suicide prevention. 
So like 911, you dial 988 and you get Correct. to a counselor? Correct. The government has set up a nationwide network. I did not know. I did not know that. That's fascinating that the government would set up those three digit uh, linkages like that. Yes. And, And healthcare at the macro level like this. What's what's your report card on America today? I mean, I know we are often considered the most obese nation on the planet. We're also also considered the the nation that consumes the most cheap calories, as they say, for uh, some some of the e- economic levels, uh, in, uh, you know, or urban environment with uh, lower economic tiers and stuff like that. Are we are we getting better, or what? What's your report card? That is a really tough question to answer. I know. <laughs> I have a feeling it might not be a fair question to ask either. But just give it give it a shot. Well, I, so I am an optimist. I, I because and I'd say I have to be. Otherwise, you would just <laughs> right. Right. it would be hard to work in the space that we do. You, there are so many embedded disparities and biases that that work against people and that work against communities. And when you think of kind of to your point of healthy behaviors, we also have to think about uh, poverty eradication and underemployment. And in thinking of individuals as a whole, it's interesting. One of the directions that we've seen that's taken up is this. There's factors related to health that are beyond that go that we're looking at health more holistically. It's called a social determinants of health. And it's where you're thinking of housing and access to food and access to healthcare, so that you're thinking transportation, that all of those factors affect our ability as individuals to lead healthy lifestyles. And then to start to translate those, those as priorities that we can start to deliver to society as a whole, so that we're treating people not just for the individual aspects, but thinking of them more holistically. I'm with the adoption of social determinants of health as a mindset, I'm actually very, that gives me a tremendous amount of encouragement because we're not just looking at individuals from the point of view of a thing that's wrong with them, but rather treating them as a whole person. So we're talking with Mary Schwartz. Mary is the managing partner of ICF Next, ICF Inner City Fund. I did not know that it stood for that. I should have figured out a three-letter acronym. And you know, in the government space, we always have to learn a new three-letter acronym. ICF Next, her focus obviously is healthcare marketing, as we've been discussing, but also AI. Before we get to AI, which you know, strikes fear in the hearts of so many citizens. And your presentations and your access, I think, are fascinating ways to to lessen that fear. I am always fascinated by new terms that enter technology that are supposed to change the world, right? So in healthcare and access to healthcare, to your prior set of comments about how many factors actually enter into a healthcare outcome, be it you know, transportation, education, access to, well, all that stuff. Rural healthcare seems to be a challenge that continues to be almost a Gordian knot. And one word that seems to be used a lot, how it's going to fix rural healthcare is telemedicine. Walk Mm -hmm. me through what telemedicine means to you and your colleagues and how it might help rural healthcare. So telemedicine has a couple of different aspects from a one-on-one basis. So a direct delivery of services, it's when you are receiving treatment or access to care through a virtualized environment. So say through your phone or your computer. Um, it can also be access to, if you're working with a local physician or, or healthcare professional, they are then tapping into a network, a remote network for guidance and support. So one of the bigger challenges, especially with a country as large as ours, when you're talking about remote areas, having the degree of specialization and the sufficient population of healthcare professionals, they can be very strapped. You know, your, your local country doc, when you think of them, is doing a incredible range and of services and just between therapeutic treatments, pharmaceutical treatments, different options, uh, different forms of development of therapies that are available, 
having that degree of specialization can be incredibly difficult. So this notion of being able to get supportive care in addition to direct care through that's, that is remote so that you're still potentially going to a clinic or seeing a healthcare professional, but they're able to tap into other resources to help them either with diagnostics or actually determining a care plan. So the old general practitioner with a black bag visiting your visiting your house shouldn't be the one analyzing the chest x-rays. So sharing data that now technology can generate so much data about our bodies and having people that know their stuff analyze it. That's one of the outcomes we're, we're, we're seeing, right? One of the potential ones. And it's interesting because when I was doing uh, earlier this year, I spoke to uh, at a conference on the, the impact of AI as related to health communications. And it was a great experience and that it really pushed me to learn in terms of what was happening and what were the potential outcomes. And, and this notion of virtualized care, where not only are you able to access it remotely, but you're starting to get support systems that are automated so that you actually have chatbots and automated text messaging programs that that are curated and the content from them is, is very closely monitored but they're able to be expanded in terms of the number of people they can reach because it's happening in an automated way. So right. it's not a one-to-one counseling, but they're starting to determine what those responses can be and having the right controls in place to trigger it when it needs to actually go to a person for review versus being able to give those supportive messages. And they get smarter. We're talking with Mary Schwartz. She's the managing partner of ICF Next, a digital healthcare, a digital agency, I should say, that uh, and her focus is often in healthcare, but also AI. So when we return here on what's working in Washington, with me, your host Mark Walsh, and our producer Tracy Madigan, we're going to focus on those four scary letters: AI and ML, artificial intelligence and machine learning. All that and more after this. Put out a huge thank you to our listeners who put us in touch with some of the best voices in Washington, D.C. and the region. We've been hearing from you through Twitter, LinkedIn, and other direct messaging. On What's Working in Washington, we talk to power players about innovation in the federal government and how businesses in the region are keeping us competitive. We talk to the brains in the nonprofit world, the restaurant domain, and next-gen tech. We love meeting smart people. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, let us know. Tracy Madigan, our producer, and I think that it's all about shining a spotlight on people who are really getting things done in the region. So please keep those ideas coming. And thanks to all of those who stay in touch with us. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh, here with producer Tracy Madigan. Again, we're so excited to be joined by Mary Schwartz. Mary is the managing partner of ICF Next, uh, the digital marketing arm of ICF that stands for Inner City Fund, in case everybody asks, but we've all heard of ICF here, certainly in the DMV and around the nation. So we were talking at, in some, to me at least, very educational level about healthcare healthcare marketing, which is kind of unfair, I think, to call it marketing, but healthcare awareness efforts and 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 how digital tools are 
I think accelerating and helping uh, awareness levels and and frankly behavior uh, uh, adjustment for healthy behavior like smoking cessation and and the healthy diets and stuff like that that you and your colleagues have been engaged with. But we also teased talking about AI and ML, artificial intelligence and machine learning. I'll go ahead and start. Pretend I'm a third grader and you have to dumb down dumb down the description. But I think I'm not alone. I think a lot of people have heard these four letters or certainly the two letters AI and kind of flipped out and really aren't listening to what it actually is about, what it does and what it can do. And I'll finish the question with this. I've been working in AI for 15 to 20 years, so it's not a new thing. And I think what has been interesting to see how people think it's this giant new machine that's emerged out of space to to blow our lives up. In fact, it's just the next chapter of what many people have been spending a lot of time on over the last two to three decades. So start from the scratch, if you don't mind, and maybe tell us what kinds of AI there are and some applications that you see. You made an interesting point about the marketing. We often refer to it as social marketing. So when you think of marketing as promoting products, social marketing is promoting behaviors. So you're definitely onto something there. And so AI and ML, artificial intelligence and machine learning, as you note, have been in practice for years. And they're embedded in some of our car, the way the cars function, the way your phone functions. I'm I'm always amazed when I, I get up, my husband gets up on Sunday mornings, goes to go for a run, and his car and his phone knows that he's actually headed to where he meets up with his friends every Sunday because he has a routine and it's actually given him a time estimate for how long it'll take to get there. So it is a part of our lives, whether we like it or not. So artificial intelligence is essentially the programming or the use of a computer programming language to create applications that essentially run and analyze data to get to a certain outcome. So it's taking a lot of data in, running an analysis, and then often generating an output that can be some type of action to be taken or a recommendation. Think about when you're when you're you're driving your car and if you have sensors on it, when you get too close to something, that sensor is constantly monitoring how far or close you are from the car in front of you and it alerts you. So it's been programmed to monitor, to determine what an appropriate distance is, and then to flash an alert when you get beyond that. But also as your example with your husband and his run uh, said, at least early on, forgive me for interrupting, is is that it learns from the patterns it sees. So the recognition of a trash can near the bumper of your car is one thing, but if it knew that every time you drove past Maple Avenue, there was a trash can on Tuesdays that was too far out in the corner, it would know if you were driving to work to alert you of that. So the pattern recognition, which I used to think was sort of machine learning element, I know the the labels get get fuzzy, Mm -hmm. but this idea of pattern recognition is as important as anything else. Correct. And and that's where artificial intelligence and machine learning do work hand in hand with one another. And interesting of late is that we've had, there's been a leap in the notion of generative AI, so that AI is not just processing kind of, again, mini applications that are serving a specific purpose, but they're now creating new things out of it. So I ran an exercise a while ago where I wanted to see, because one of the things that we do is write summaries of legislation and policies that can be you know, these are hundreds of pages, the legislation. And then when you distill it down, can you get it into a two to three page summary? And it's interesting. I put into a generative AI tool, the Tobacco Control Act, which is from, I think, 2009, and asked it to generate a 100 word executive summary in plain language. So using a language that would work for ninth grade or less in the style of USA Today, because it's a fairly accessible 
broadly read. And, and a key piece, one of the things with generative AI that I'll get to is how you structure the requests to it are really important. And I was duly impressed with what it returned because it gave, so I'm fairly familiar with the legislation, it gave a very nice summary. Now, it may have pulled from anywhere on the internet and various summaries that exist, but it did distill it into a single piece. The interesting part is I then had it translated into Spanish, had it translate the Spanish into Turkish, and ran those two pieces by native speakers. They both were actually very comfortable with the translations, had some minor modifications, but really felt that it was a pretty accurate piece. I then actually ran the original piece by a, a colleague who specializes in plain language writing. Now, she had a number of different changes. She thought it was a good start, but really had a good amount of editing to get it to a point where it truly was appropriate for a ninth grade reading level. And the point here is these tools are able to actually do things that are difficult for us or that take a lot of time. And I know that there's, and I was, uh, part of the reason I did this exercise was to give context around how generative AI and AI ML can be used to help us do our jobs, to help us work more efficiently, and not to be something that kind of we wait to see what happens with and we're afraid of using, but rather to put it in a context of how it can help you on a day-to-day basis. So that's, and, that, that, that's a, I'm sorry to break in, but that, that's a fabulous example because we all know legislation is is often filled with page after page after page of lawyerly uh, analysis. But one of the things that I was also fascinated by in your presentation and other stuff that you've done is NLP, natural, lang- natural language processing, which as opposed to a textual document that an AI program or ML can read and and, and assess and, and condense and, and present in many languages. But a show like this, you know, na- a, a, an actual spoken exchange between people and and taking that taking that audio moment and turning it into something that is analyzable and turning that into a summary. So walk us through what NLP is doing for AI. So NLP, think of it as a component, that it's one of the tools that AI is using in order to create products. So it is taking different aspects of language and putting them in the context of one another. So to identify appropriate use. So as it's, as you're thinking about generative AI, it's no longer just stringing together sentences that were there, but rather it understands the context and understand is is generous, but it can determine what words are appropriately used with other words and when they're used together, how that meaning may change by learning that from other examples that it, um, that are kind of out there in different context pieces. That goes back to when I've been using generative AI, those prompts. So how you actually structure a request in, you can't simply put, create a, bake a cake for me. You, you need to put more context around what the request is, the format that you want it back in, any restrictions, and what you want that output to look like. So remember, these are machines. You have to be very linear with them in terms right. of what the request. Otherwise, you're going to continue to get something that's not quite right. Well, the joke I used to say is, you know, what, what when when you when you ask a congressman, you know, what does the word radical mean? They may say one thing. You ask a ski bum in Aspen what the word radical means, they will have a very different explanation. The ski bum thinks it's wonderful. The congressman often would uh, he or she would argue that that it's not. So that's to me that that's contextual use of the exact same thing, which hopefully we're seeing machines and ML and AI getting smarter and smarter. We have a little bit of time left, but the other term that I think our listeners would like is LLM. So LLMs are large language models, and they are actually this most recent breakthrough in AI. So they're these massive models, like the entire content of the internet that's used to train these engines to to think and create. Now the interesting part is. 
they can use massive models to learn, but then you can use small portions or restricted portions to, in order to control the content that actually comes out. And we call that kind of an edge use or an yeah. edge model. And that's very helpful. So let's say within the healthcare space, obviously you have to be very careful about the content that you put forward. You don't just want an algorithm to generate content and push it out. You want it to be contained. You need it to be vetted. But the way that questions are asked, you don't necessarily want to answer each question individually by a person. So we've taken to using what are called edge models, where the content itself is, is very restricted and fully vetted. And then we use the trained AI, so that large language model or the, the machine learning behind it, in order to pick the right questions right. or the pick the right answers from the questions that are being asked, which allows for that personalization without having to have a human touch each time. This to me, I know we all have a little bit of time left, but boy, this could be you and me chatting for, so to speak, uh, chatting for a couple of hours. The 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 idea of of the sourcing of the data and the example I use, and I, I don't I'm I'm tossing this out not just as an example, of not, not to turn this into the rest of the show, but you know, uh, if you asked ChatGPT or Bard or whatever, was Jimmy Carter's presidency successful, question mark, depending on what data source it went to, right. there would be very different outcomes, right? So this idea, which you said earlier, uh, Mary Swartz, our guest today, is you have to know how you're asking it, what you're asking it, and then the LLM or the subset of the LLM, the edge or whatever the term is, on, on, on what, the, what the data set is going. It is an amazing to me, this is, well, you're living it. Well, a key piece there is also the validation. So you can't just yeah. take what you're given it as gospel. Rather, you need to do a human review, have it reviewed against a separate model. There's so much more levels to it that it's not simply a replacement. It really is, it's a new tool that we work with. It's a very collaborative tool to make work easier and richer and, and candidly people more productive. So those of you afraid that your job is going to be disappeared by AI, listen to our guest, Mary Schwartz. <laughs> the managing partner of digital agency ICF Next, because in fact, as someone famously once said, you're not going to lose your job to AI. You're going to lose your job to someone who knows AI. And that's a very important difference. We don't have much time left, but we ask all of our guests, Mary, a simple final question, which is if you ran the world, what would you start happening that isn't or stop happening that is or both? I would love to see if I ran the world, a neutral party, much most likely the U.S. government or some collective of governments creating actually that validation model for AI so that there is the reliability of the content. So again, when you're using AI and generative AI, you need to have something to validate against. We need a standard model that makes that available. I would love to see that created and curated, actively curated by a neutral party so that a lot of the misinformation and the risk for misinformation is, is better managed. I have two, if it's okay. Let's go. Well, so the other one, as a, as a parent of 20-something children, I would love to see all of the kids that were affected by COVID get a do-over. So like that it. year or two that they lost, I would love to see if actually, we've seen so many kids go through this and, you know, we were marching on and I would have loved to have seen, especially end high school, early college, that whole generation get a, get a year back to, the, um, to either redo it in school or have an adventure and do something that they get that time back. It's definitely having an effect on that whole generation. And, and they're a hard, highly resilient group, but you can see the difference. I completely agree. It took a bite out of their life experience and it would be love to get it back. Mary Schwartz, managing partner of ICF Next. Thank you so much for being with us today on What's Working in Washington. Thank you for having me. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. 
And that theme music you enjoy, performed by the Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.